welcome everybody to uh, session four in the faith series. Um, so again, like like just to give credit where credit is due, uh, everything that is being said is uh, my take on this book called The Faith by a guy called Clark Carlton. Um, and there are like direct quotes from from the book. And um, unless otherwise noted, you can presume that a lot of the stuff on the slides is directly from the book, just to give credit where credit is, um, is due. So we're talking today about creation, namely before the fall. So Adam and Eve created in the paradise of joy, right? And by the deception of the serpent, they fell from eternal life and were exiled from the paradise of joy, like we say in the liturgy. So... What happened before the fall? What happened before they ate from the fruit? Right? Eating of the fruit. What is the fruit? Why did I, they eat the fruit? All of that. Um, there should be some more batteries maybe inside. Sorry. Uh, you can just... Uh, all that. We'll talk all about all that next week. Um, but so today we're just looking at the restored state. Remember we've been said many, many times that our journey in life is a reversal of, of how we ended up here. God created us in perfect communion with Him and we ended up in this distorted state and now we're being restored back to the original state. So today we're talking about what is the restored state. Like today is where we're defining the, defini the, the destination, right? If you don't know where you're going, you're highly unlikely to get there. And even if you do get there, you won't know that you got there. Um, so you're, we really need to know where we're going. Um, and so today is all about purpose. It's all, all about, it's all about purpose. Uh, Clark Carlton says very simply, man was created in the image of God in order to live in a perfect communion of love with God, his fellow humans, and the physical world. There you go. The meaning of life summed up for you in one sentence. Let's like, dissect that just a little bit. Man was created, humankind, uh, we always prefer gender neutral language. Humankind was created in the image of God. In order to live in a perfect communion of love with God. This is a famous expression which says that like attracts like. Uh, in the uh, you know, romantic and relationship world, a very common and good piece of advice is be the kind of person you want to be with, right? You want to be with someone who's, you know, whatever, you know, uh, athletic, be athletic. Because athletic people probably want to be with somebody who's athletic. You're really not into that and you don't want to be with people who are always talking about sports, don't hang out with people who are always talking about sports. Like it's not rocket science, right? But it makes sense, right? And similar to how, you know, different species are not able to enter into intimate union with each other because they're different species, it makes sense that God created us in His image and likeness so that we could have this loving union with Him, right? So it's not... It's kind of not um, rocket science, right? And the whole idea is to return to this perfect communion of love. Communion of love is like a favorite line in orthodoxy. Because that's what it's all about. 
That's the whole thing. It can be summarized in communion of love with God, with our fellow human beings, and with the physical world. Now, it's obvious that that is not the reality of what is happening by and large. If you turn the news on, if you, you know, look around you, sometimes even not so far away. In the beginning, the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning. Naturally, the first words in the Bible are in the beginning. But, you know, we think that's very natural and normal. But if you think about it, the Bible, Scripture as a whole, the, its purpose is to reveal God. Its purpose is not to, to uh, you know, give us a manual of how to create the universe. It's not a science book or a history book. It's a, it's, it's a book about a person. It's a book about a person. So in orthodoxy, we don't believe, uh, like, we be, or to state it in the positive, we believe that the Word of God, with a small w, is a book about the Word, with a capital W, of God, is a, a book about God. So it's a book describing God. So if, you, if I was writing... If I was writing your life story, I don't necessarily have to start on the day you were born. I could start with a very significant event and then trace back. But somehow God knows that we're itching to know what's behind it all. What got it going? How did it start? What was the trigger? How did it happen? God knows we're itching for those answers. So he begins the story with the beginning. Naturally, if there's a beginning, right? If there's a beginning, then there must have been something before that beginning. So Genesis is aiming to answer the questions of who and why, and also like what to some degree. Where and when, eh, not so much, but not how. So, what, you know, like, we, if we have time, we're going to get to, like, uh, you know, creationism versus evolution and all that kind of at the end, if we have time, right? But science is really looking to answer the question, how? And, and the book of Genesis is really looking to answer the question, why and who? So they're answering different questions. So not necessarily... They're going to be very different descriptions. We have a number of scientists in the room. I'm sorry for those who are, are not don't have a science background, but I mean, you all are you all are are, are very learned people. Um, and in any research paper, there will be a methods section, right? So, in my past life as a surgeon, if I'm writing a technical paper about a new operation, right, and how it is how it is how to do this operation, and it's a new operation that no one's done, or a, usually a modification of of an operation that makes a significant difference and is worth writing writing about, the methods section will be a lot longer. Like there are methodology papers where the whole paper is almost about methodology, describing a new methodology. Right? And then there is obviously some results and discussion, limitations, all that stuff, right? Versus, for example, a systematic review. And a systematic review of, of this new surgical uh, technique, right? You're going to have the methodology is going to be the methodology that was used to do the review and prove that the methodology 
was systematic and they, we didn't omit any evidence, the, the, the methodology is hardly going to talk about the, the, this operation at all, right? So it depends what the paper was written for. If the paper was written for this, it's written to an audience who's interested in this and it's answering that question, right? So necessarily, you know, if, if the Bible of Genesis was trying to answer the question of how, it would have been written very differently. But if it's trying to answer the question of who and why, then it's, it's the, the intersect is not going to be very big with how. So, just a little bit, a little bit about that. The chief concern of Christianity with creation is meaning. Why are we here? What are we doing here? That's really what we're getting at. How we got here is only that interesting as, it, as in it, it touches. What are we doing here? What am I supposed to spend my days doing? And the main point is simply this. God created the world out of nothing. Number two, of all creation, creatures of the earth, man is unique because he was created in the image and likeness of God. So humankind is drastically different from the rest of all God's creation. But all God's creation was created by God. So if you dust for fingerprints, right, uh, on the altar vessels, whose prints are you going to find? Mine, right? And you're going to be able to link me with the altar vessels. Because the only person who touches the altar vessels with his bare hands is the priest, right? Or whatever, right? So all of creation has God's fingerprints all over it. But man or humankind is specifically created in the image and likeness of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. There's a couple of things that are really, really interesting to mention here. One is that if God created the world out of nothing, then we don't believe in a pre-existence of matter. I.e., God did not create the universe out of something. He created it out of nothing. So if He created it out of something... Right? So these, these pews in the church, these wood benches, were created out of something, out of oak trees, right? So you can only make oak pews out of oak trees. You can't make maple pews or whatever, pine pews, right? You can't make aluminum out of oak trees. You're limited to make, you can only make something out of something that comes from that thing. Does that make sense? So that means if God created the world out of something, he's limited in what he's able to create it in. So that's one reason why we don't believe in the pre-existence of matter. And it's really funny because all, all like major civilizations up until Christianity and long after, because Christianity was not the dominant was not dominant until, until the 4th century. But up until that time, all major civilizations believed that the cosmos was eternal. And they believed that deities, gods or gods, Zeus or those who were monotheistic or polytheistic, created things out of things. They were either believed that the cosmos was eternal, 
or they believed in pantheism. Pretty much all ancient civilizations and all ancient religions, including the Greeks, including the, the Romans, including a variety of other religions which exist to this day, believed in, one of, in either of the two, that, that the cosmos was eternal and there were God, a god or gods who created things out of the cosmos, or that everything is God, pantheism, right? In, in, either, in either sense, creation in some form is eternal, right? But that's not what we believe. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.16, St. Paul says, We believe God alone is eternal and immortal. God alone is eternal and immortal. Immortal in and of himself. Right? So, essentially, for, for us as Christians, from our Christian perspective, anything that is eternal is God. So to say that creation is eternal, but God created us out of stuff and there is pre-existent matter would make that matter, if it's eternal, would make it God to us. Because eternity is a feature of God. You say, but, but Abuna, in Ecclesiastes uh, 4.16, don't quote me, but chapter 4, says, but he has put eternity in their hearts. So we have a certain sense of eternity. And you all have heard me talk a lot about that, about how we have features that are eternal. For example, your hunger is eternal. You're hungry and then you eat and then you're full and you're happy and you're not hungry anymore. What happens Two, three hours later or if you're a teenage boy 20 minutes later, you're hungry again, right? So, you can say, well, Abuna, so we must be eternal. No, we're created in the image and likeness of God. So there are features of God that are clearly reflected in us. But that doesn't mean that we are we are those things by nature, or we are those we are those things um, in and of ourselves. So we said, like man's humankind's purpose is to live in perfect communion of love with God, our fellow humans, and creation. So let's start with God. In the Book of Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first sign of spiritual growth, the beginning of spiritual growth, the beginning of spiritual life is to realize that God and I are not the same. I.e. that I am not God. I know, it comes as a shock to you all. It did to me too. I looked in the mirror and said, hi God, right? No, no, I am not, I am not God. And you're going to say, I want to don't be ridiculous. I know I'm not God, right? And I'll say, okay. And then I'll say, tell me about your prayers. And you say, well, I pray that I pray for uh, that I would get this job. I would pray that I would get this position. I pray that I would get into this relationship. I pray that uh, whatever this and that and so on. So I have a will and I'm asking God to do my will. God loves me, so he should do what I say. So who's God? Right? It's very subtle. It's very, very subtle how we know... Sorry, I keep doing that. You have to tell me when I'm not, uh, when I'm not flipping, the, flipping the slides. Um, 
So uh, it's very, very subtle. It's very subtle. How? Will you say, God, you are God, and I worship you. And there is no God but, but you alone. And, and like the, the creed in Judaism could be summarized in one sentence. Hear, O God, hear, O Israel, your God is one. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. Like, you know, it's called the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, right? And like, it's, it, that's like, like, you know, like in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when God meant it to us, to, for, for in Judaism, it's, or modern day Judaism, but it, it's probably is, uh, since antiquity, it's the Shema Israel, right? And, and, and in every religion, there's a huge distinction between man and God, right? An organized form of religion that believes in a God, right? But somehow, somehow, very discreetly, we kind of sneak in there and elbow Jesus off the throne and sit down and make ourselves comfortable and put my soft drink in his, in his cup holder on the throne and just kind of claim it for home, right? And this is called, the, the Russian fathers call this prelest. Well, it's a Russian, the word prelest is a Russian word. I know you can't read it. Like I'm going to summarize it for you. The purpose of the slide was to say I'll summarize it for you, right? From Wikipedia, but you can look it up. I mean, like I mean, there's other sources that are more reliable than Wikipedia, but Wikipedia was pretty, pretty, pretty good. It's a Russian term which basically means self-delusion. So a delusion about myself. The word delusion is a, f a firm and unshakable belief. So I have a firm and unshakable belief which is contrary to reality as espoused by the rest of the world about myself. That's what prelest is. But that's what the definition of it is. And the word prelest is a Slavonic word, is a Greek word, uh, it's a Russian word, sorry, right? Um, and because it's kind of so specific, translating it like is a sentence, you know? So they just, in, even in English and Arabic, and so they, they never bothered to translate it, they just used it, you know? The same way that we say agape, you know? Because, yes, the word agape tra translates to love, but a very specific form of love, right? And like, We'd have to, every time we say agape, if you're writing a paragraph or a paper about agape, every time, you, you know, you know, altruistic, impersonal, self-giving love, like it's cumbersome. So we just say agape, you know, so prelest, same thing. People just, in, in a theological literature, they just use the word prelest, right? But it means a, a delusion about myself. But the speaking, and, and, and this isn't a somatic like psychiatric illness. This is a spiritual illness. So this is not referring to, um, to a, a mental illness of some kind, but it is referring rather to a spiritual illness, right? Just to be clear. And although it's not part formally of the definition, it's almost always meaning a delusion about myself that I am God. And every sin can be reduced to that. And that's why, you've heard me say a billion times, spiritual life can be simplified as a movement from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. To moving myself off the throne and putting Jesus, inviting Jesus back onto the throne. Right? But you see how this is very intimately related to our understanding and belief of creation. Right? That God was be before it all, behind it all, greater than it all, right? And he created us. 
He created us of him, of, out of nothing. So what does it mean, though, that we are made in his image? His likeness is pretty simple. Like, I don't look like Marlon, you know, and Marlon doesn't look like me. And thank God, Marlon doesn't have nearly as much facial hair as I do, right? And a multitude of other differences, you know, Marlon is much better looking, and so on, right? And we can kind of like, you know, we can kind of, right, accept that, and that's easy, right? Do we look alike, or do we look different? Do I look like God, or not? So likeness, to some degree, in a very superficial way, is a little bit more simple. But what does it mean that we're made in the image and likeness of God? So what's the image, then? Well... Um, according to the image, could mean both the origin and the goal of our existence. So far as we image forth the wise, creative God, so far do we discover in ourselves the charismas of knowledge and creativity. Other people have said that, is it man's soul? Is it the fact that humankind has a soul? Is that what it means? That, you know, a mind, a will, an emotion, emotion, we're deliberate. You know, all of those things are far more developed in humankind than they are in the animal kingdom. Even in like, like uh, uh, um, chimpanzees and orangutans and, and, and gorillas, you know, uh, like all of, those, all of those things are far more developed in humankind. Is it... To that degree that they're developed, those attributes of the soul that were created in the image and like in the image of God, is it our free will? You know, like to a large degree, a lot of animals are governed by instinct, but animals do demonstrate an ability to act out of free will. Some animals do de de demonstrate an ability to sacrifice themselves for their young and stuff like that, right? To, against the instinct of life. So, but is that an instinct? Are they acting like is the instinct to preserve one's young greater than the instinct of life? Like it gets very complicated, right? Is it the ability to govern? Is that is that is that what it what it is? To be honest with you, it's all of these things and more. It's the totality of our being, because if we are created in the image and likeness of God, we are similar but not the same, and to a great degree, much less. A terrible analogy, but it's an analogy, is like, like somebody looking in the mirror. Like, the thing that he's looking at looks very, very similar. But the thing he's looking at is a reflection, and he is the, he is the whatever, the real thing, right? He is made of flesh and blood and a beating heart and so on, the reflection is made of photons, Tansu? Is that right? Something like that? No? I don't know. It's like reflected light, isn't it? Something like that, right? You know? So, like, they're made essentially of different things. The thing you're looking at in the mirror is, 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 not, is not the same as you. It's not like one equals one. But it looks very similar, and when you move, it moves, and stuff like that, right? So, in a certain sense, it's like that. But suffice it to say that we being created in the image of God means that God is much bigger and we're like a little subset. 
a little subset, somehow. But in as much as God is personal, we are personal. And as much as God is able to love, and He has made us in His image, able to love. And as much as we've been talking for like weeks now about how the Holy Trinity is personal, is face persona, face to face, in as much as, in as, much as hu- humankind is also personal, right? In that sense, we're created in the image of God, we're created in the image of the Holy Trinity. St. Athanasius says, For of what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? So it's in knowing ourselves. It's, it's in discovering ourselves that we see a reflection of who God is and we glorify Him. And so St. Athanasius summarizes our reason, our purpose on earth as as knowing our Maker, discovering Him, every day discovering Him more. St. Augustine quoted innumerable times saying, Our hearts can have no rest until they find rest in Thee, or our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Right? That our ultimate destination, our place, our belonging is is to be in God for the square peg to fall back into the square into the into the square hole. So secondly, our reason for being is to live in a perfect communion of love with our fellow humans or his or her fellow fellow humans. John Donne, not a theologian necessarily, but says no man is an island entire of himself. No man is an island entire of himself, or no man is an island unto himself, is often how it's, how it's quoted, but more accurately from originally in his, I think, poetry. No man is an island entire of himself. Your existence is more than you. Again, I am not God, right? God is reflected in everything, but I'm not reflected in everything, you know? Even if we look at the word philanthropy, it is a combined word. Phila, nethrope. Phila is the second form of love, which is a familiar love or a familial love. The word, the word phila is most accurately translated, not necessarily love, but friend. A reciprocal relationship, right? Different from agape and different from eros, which are all translated as, as love. And nethrope, humankind, right? And in Midnight Praises, we start off with Arise, O children of the light, let us praise the Lord of hosts, that he may bestow upon us the salvation of our souls. And what's the chorus for that part? Glory be to you, O lover of humankind. But more accurately, it would be friend of humankind. And in a past life, we talked about friendship many moons ago, and we had a series on friendship, and we talked about how friendship is essential for God. Because the, the binding relationship that we experience day by day between us and God is a relationship of friendship. He is the friend of humankind. There's something about that. You can't... You, 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 
you know, it, it's, it's kind of weird to talk about oneself as being a friend of oneself. Friendship almost necessarily implies another, right? And that's God, and that's us. So naturally, we are not individuals. We are not isolated. For, for us, like it's critical, and like we've mentioned this before multiple times, but it's really it's still it's still just as important to mention it now. We're not individuals. We're persons. We're persons in relationship, not individuals in isolation, right? We 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 cannot be defined in isolation. We don't belong in isolation. We belong in in face to face in personal relationship, just as God Himself is personal. Like when we talked about the Holy Trinity. God says in Genesis chapter 2, it is not good that man should be alone. Right? And he creates Eve for him. But here, this is commonly understood as like, because of the temporal succession, it is not good for man that may be alone. And he creates Eve for him, that God is strictly speaking to say, it is not good for man to be without a companion, you know, everybody should get married, right? That's kind of what, how that's commonly understood. And the answer, like, the, the Orthodox Church says, no, no. I mean, yes, like, you want to get married, if that's what's in your heart, God bless you and may God give you and so on. But no, it is not good for man to be alone, to be individual, to not be personal, to turn his face away. It is good for man to be personal, to be person to person, as the Holy Trinity is also person to person, right? In, in the Psalms, uh, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, right? For, for pieces of a puzzle to fit together and to belong. And that's why it's so critical that the church offer people a sense of belonging quickly and easily. Church shouldn't be a place where people have to navigate the unseen social rules of how do I need, what do I need to do to be with the in crowd. Church should be like, you know, like an all-encompassing, all-absorbing kind of mother that just kind of takes everybody, everybody in. And if you want to come in, you can come in and you can fit, you can fit in, right? We're creating the image and likeness of God so that we can fit in with God in this holy society of the Holy Trinity, right? God, strictly speaking, is love. And we talked again about that, again about that last week. And, and, and St. John says in his first epistle, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Like, it's very, it's very simple. Like, that's, that's the action that's the thing that, that, that not God does, but God is. So us living love makes, makes us living the way we were meant to be. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is clarifying. Not the love that you have otherwise learned elsewhere, but the love as I have loved you. Thirdly, to live in a per, in perfect communion of love with the physical world. So, many times it's said that humanity is the crown of creation. What does that mean? Right, right out of Clark Carlton's book, man was created last as the, cre as the crown and glory of the whole creation. 
The world was created for man so that through his wise and loving use of it, it might be a means of communion with God. So God gave us the world so that through it we could have communion with God. Looking at this a little bit more, a little bit more, um, you know, we oftentimes talk about dominion. And it's biblical, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God is saying, let humankind have dominion over, largely speaking, the animal kingdom. Right? Including insects and so on. Right? So this word dominion is very interesting because different people understand it very differently. Dominion can be understood either as like a benevolent king. Like I tried to find a Google image of a benevolent king. I didn't find anything. All the images were terrifying, right? So the best thing I could think of, like I was thinking, I said, okay, if, if, if you say benevolent king, what's the image that comes to my mind? Uh, if, let's, let's open it up to the crowd. If I say benevolent ruler, sorry, that's what I Google imaged. What image comes to your mind? Nothing. Silence. <laughs> We've never met one. <laughs> We're waiting to find one. This isn't like a, a political statement or anything, right? I don't know. The only, I thought to myself, okay, what, what image comes to mind? I thought of Aslan. Like, you know, the lion who in the Chronicles of Narnia, and he's just, you know, he's just so graceful, but so powerful. And he makes everything good. He makes everything right. Every, like everywhere his paws fall goes from winter to spring. And finally, he offers his life to restore life to the world. And so, kind of he's like, he's, he's very much that, 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 that Christ image. You know, I googled tyrant, and I found a, lots of lots of pictures, right? And I picked, you know, I tried to pick one that was, didn't have the face of a, of a current or, or past uh, world ruler, you know, uh, right? But I mean, so did God create us when he said that he created us to have dominion over largely the animal kingdom, over creation, shall we say? Did he create us to be like benevolent rulers who give themselves for the life of the world? Or did he create us to be tyrants who use, exploit, you know, destroy for their own selfish intent. Like it's, it's pretty obvious if we're created in the image and likeness of God, we just need to look at what, how does he govern? How does he rule, right? And it becomes very clear what it means that we have a role, a role of dominion. It's part of our role. It's part of our role to protect at the cost of our own lives. How many people here would would prefer to die than have a tree cut down or a squirrel run over as roadkill or whatever, right? You know, like, let's just say the gap between where we are as a society today and this kind of dominion is kind of really, really big. Yeah, I know I'm starting to sound a bit like an environmentalist, but, you know, you find in the lives of the saints, you find that a lot of saints had very close friendships 
with ferocious animals. The, the, the story that comes to mind the, the most clearly is simply because it's a recent story, so we know kind of the details of it. There was a monk um, who was the disciple of, of uh, Bishop Abraham, who's the friend of the poor, the friend of the brethren of the Lord. His disciple, Father uh, Michael Al-Bahiri, Abuna Mikhail Al-Bahiri. Father Michael was a very holy man, and the other uh, monks got jealous of him. And so they started playing tricks on him. In fact, when, uh, when uh, Father Abulus got ordained to become the bishop, Bishop Abraham, this is his name beforehand, Father, Father Mikhail cried and said, please don't leave me in the monastery by myself because the other monks will kill me. Right? And he told, don't worry, God will take care of you and this and that, and he left. And the other monks, out of their jealousy, they tortured him. Right? You know, monks are human beings like anybody else. They can fall in sin. And so anyways, whatever. It's, uh, they all repented in the end. But they, so they, they hated him. So they played pranks and tricks on him all the time. So once they were so jealous of him, they decided, let's just make him die. So they, took, they found a very venomous snake in the desert. And they took it and they threw it in his cell. And they were so jealous of him that he wouldn't, usually he wouldn't eat with the other brethren. He would take his food and go eat in his cell. So they did that around dinner time because they knew he would go into his cell. So he goes into his cell for dinner with his food, and he hears and he hears the snake. And, and, and he was blind. So they knew like he wouldn't see the snake and whatever, so for sure he would die. So he saw the snake and he says to he says to, Oh my beloved, are you here? Did you eat dinner? And he started taking from his dinner and feeding the snake. And then he said, I'm tired. I need to, I need to take a nap or a, before, a sleep a little bit before the prayer tonight. Can, can you make a little circle to be my pillow and I'll, put my, and I'll rest my head on you? I fed you dinner. You can be my pillow. So the snake curled itself up in a circle and he put his head down on the snake and slept. He woke up, the snake was with him. Then everywhere he went, who followed him? The snake. Right? And then what and then what happened? Did anybody harass him after that? Never again, because this venomous snake was following him everywhere he went. Right? He gave the snake his own dinner. Like he preferred to sleep hungry than to sleep knowing that the snake hasn't eaten dinner. That's dominion. That's the kind of dominion that we're talking about. This is why, by the way, the readings on weekdays all revolve around the synexarium, the, the life of the saint. Right? So, um, you'll find that the lives of the saints expose to us, reveal to us the gospel. So this says, you know, in, in Genesis it says, let us make man according to our image that have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on, right? So each person can be left to kind of try to interpret that and understand that in their own way. And one person will understand that as benevolent ruler, another one will understand it as, as having like entitlement, like we're entitled to use creation however we want and so on, right? But when we look back at the lives of the saints, we find they expose to us the gospel. 
or, or they expose to us scripture. They make clear to us what the Bible is really trying to say. So in orthodoxy we say you cannot understand scripture or the written word of God without the living word of God, without the body of Christ, without the church. So this idea that I can run off into the forest and read the Bible and be enlightened, maybe, maybe you will stumble upon the correct interpretation. But maybe if you just hang out with the rest of the believers, you'll be able to see the Bible lived out in the lives of these, of these people. Just a, a brief aside. So our purpose is very simply to have a proper relationship with the world, and that is a sacramental relationship, right? To receive the world as God's gift and to offer it back to God along with all of, his cre all of life as a sacrifice of love and obedience. What does that mean? A sacrament, we said before, but just as, you know, to kind of reiterate and solidify the idea, a physical manifestation of spiritual phenomenon. So, you see something, but what you see is part of a much greater whole that you don't see. St. Augustine says, the visible portion of an unseen grace. God has given us a free gift. You can see a piece of it, but you can't see the rest. Like the tip of the iceberg. Just because you can see the tip doesn't mean there's nothing under the water, right? So, our relationship with the created world is a sacramental one. What does that mean? That means that how we interact with the world reveals a much greater reality. How God interacts with all of His creation. The things that are visible and the things that are invisible. How we interact with the world is supposed to be revealing to, to, to all of creation, how God interacts with creation, how God interacts with the angels, how God interacts with the demons, how God interacts with everything. So that relationship of proper dominion is supposed to be a reflection of God's, God's dominion, right? What is that? To receive, God gave us the world, so we should receive it as a gift, and we should offer it back to Him also as a gift. When we offer gifts to God, what do we call that? We call that sacrifices, right? And specifically, what does that mean? That means our love and our obedience and our relationship with the created world is, is how we do that, right? And like I took like a very extreme example in telling the story of, of uh, Father, uh, Father Mikhail Bahari, kind of how... He lives sacrifice and love for the venomous snake, you know. But, you, you know, there are much, there are certainly much less extreme examples. You know, your, 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 cho your choice not to print something and not chop down more. Your choice to be diligent about whatever, your waste disposal so that organics actually get composted and, and, uh, and uh, you know, stuff actually gets recycled. I don't know, whatever. Right? You can think of a million and one ways. And then all of a sudden, throwing out trash becomes sacramental to you. You're diligent about where you put your recycling and your organics and whatever because you feel that this world was given to me as a gift. I have to take care of it. Right? So everything all of a sudden becomes a sacrament to you. So we go and slaughter a cow to eat it. How does that... 
How does that jive with this? <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna uh, turn into a, a, a vegetarian or a vegan on you because I. It would make me. <laughs> it would make me a hypocrite. In principle. In principle, I. I am. I am a vegetarian, almost a vegan. Uh, I have a friend who, who uh, uh, is follows a, a, a completely different faith, right? Uh, like a subset of Hinduism, Veda. It's called Vedic knowledge. Anyways, so uh, I, I was, uh, first few times I went out with him, right? Uh, we went out for breakfast, right? And he he says he's asking like he's getting a pastry or something. So he asks the guy behind the counter, "Does that have eggs in it?" I'm like, "What does it matter?" Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I mean, you just ask him if it's vegan. He goes, "No, no, I, I drink like milk and butter's fine, but I, not eggs." I'm like, "Well, like, so where is the limit? Like, where do you put the limit?" He goes, "Anything that has a face or could have a face." And I'm like. So why 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 that right and he and he goes on to explain further right and I, and and anyone who is more knowledgeable than me about uh, about uh, like Ve- like Ve- Vedic knowledge and all of that please speak up like I'm not totally not pretending to be uh, an expert right but just what I learned from this friend and he says well because the face is the representation or the seat or something. Of not like the soul, but of life. So if you eat life, then that's like negative karma, like, right? And then you're more likely to reincarnate like at a lower state rather than a more, you know, better state or something like that. Anyhow, the reason I'm bringing this up, right, is that like the reason that you're intimating, Auntie Sue, that maybe we shouldn't kill animals or maybe any living thing. Um, and eat them or do other things to them, right? Is very different from the reason that he said, right? So it's really important to understand the reason. In principle, in principle, I completely agree. The reality is, the reality is I still do eat meat. I've gone, I've been vegetarian, nearly, nearly vegan for long stretches of time, just under two years, a couple of times in my life. But I, I just couldn't keep doing it. My spiritual father is. He he is, he is a, a pescatarian. I guess he eats he eats fish. And then you eat the fish. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. So I asked him about that, and I asked him your question exactly. So shouldn't I just become? Vegetarian, and his advice to me was this. He said, "All of us know what we should be. Like, let's let's move away from the food for a second, and then come back to it. Right? Let's talk about gossip. All of us know that we shouldn't gossip. Gossip, strictly speaking, is speaking about somebody in their absence, good or bad. Right? When I tell people we shouldn't gossip, gossip is wrong. Gossip is talking about people in their absence." People who are honest tell me, but Father John, we all gossip, and we're all going to gossip, and we're never going to stop gossiping, right? <laughs> Fine. But I, accept, I still accept that it's wrong, and I wish to change. But I'm just kind of 
not able to now. But if I look over my life, I used to gossip a whole lot more, and now I gossip a whole lot less. And hopefully, one day, I'll stop gossiping altogether. Right? And that's kind of our journey in the transformation of our passions into energies of God. Right? And our transformation of, of a, a deformed, distorted, perverted state to a restored one. And it's a process. So, I'm in that process with the cow that I'm killing, right? And not quite at the point where I'm able to just eat grass and dates, you know, like the, like the desert dwellers, right? But I aspire to it. I do indeed. I do indeed. I do indeed aspire. I do indeed aspire to a time where I'll feel that the Word of God is more than enough sustenance for me, you know? And just a little thing to eat here, a little thing to drink there, just to keep just to keep the machine rolling. Do I live to eat or do I eat to live? You know? You know, I'm still I'm still in, I'm still not sure where I where I am with that. But I know where I want to be. Is that is that a is that a fair enough answer of Tansu? Ideally I would say yes. Ideally I would say if we follow that we have dominion and we're stewards. Yes. Then really we should just not we should just stick to straight vegetables because these are sustainable and the trees we're not hurting anybody the trees give us fruit yes is, isn't there somewhere in the bible that the god allowed people to kill this this and this yeah other than being the stewards for the yes when god created humankind and in in paradise adam and eve were were vegan or vegetarian or whatever you want to call it, right? They, they didn't kill, right? Nothing died. Not, nothing died in, in, in paradise. But after the flood and af after Noah and, and, and after that, all of that, God told, told them, you can, you, can, you can eat the animals, right? So, but we see that as a concession. Why? Because, remember what we said at the very beginning. Today we're talking about before the fall. We're talking about the restored state, right? So, where am I going? Where's, what's my destination? My destination is life before the fall. So, I want to start living life before the fall. When I was a kid, uh, I was in my early teens, I decided I wanted to be a monk, right? So, I went ballistic, right? I just I re researched all about how monks live, what do they eat, what do they wear, right? And they wear like some clothes underneath their like outer cassock. I started to wear that underneath my clothes because no one could see it, no one would know, right? Like I went, I went like way extreme, like in an unhealthy way, right? But my reasoning was very simply, if, if that's what I'm going to be doing eight years from now, it's not going to happen all of a sudden. I'm not going to like enter the monastery and all of a sudden I'm going to become vegetarian and all of a sudden I'm going to be able to fast till sunset and all of a sudden I'm going to be able to pray. And You know what I mean? So if I want to be there in eight years, I've got to start training myself now, right? Which is a very, very reasonable way to think and in your professional lives, I'm sure we all think the same way. And earlier we were saying, you know, like attracts like and all that stuff, right? So, yes, the restored state is a state that doesn't, that doesn't kill other animals, right? But, and that's where I want to go, but I'm not quite there. But the church doesn't have, again, like we don't have like rules, like you should and you have to. And that's not what it's about. 
It's a, remember, we're like, we started from very basic first principles these last few weeks, talking about personal, persona, face-to-face, relationship. That's what it's about. It's not about rules, eat this and don't eat that, and so on, right? But you're, we're talking about what's the restored state, and you ask the question, and f- quite frankly, if I'm going to be honest, you're absolutely right. I'm going to disagree. <laughs> Fire away. <laughs> okay, well, I don't want to hold that thing. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. If we're going to go by, like, life and what can give life, well, fruits and vegetables can give life. That's what a fruit is. The fruit is what, like, reproduces trees. So, like, where do you draw the line? Because there's also people that don't eat fruits and vegetables. There's people that only eat things that are not part of a root and part of a, what is it called, part of an animal. Like, like at some point, you have to agree that, like, to eat means that you're going to be eating life, whether it's plant life or animal or fish, you can move around. Huh? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Doesn't specifically say all of creation. Right? That's number one. Number two, um, I'm not, again, like, I'm not a fundamental vegetarian or vegan or whatever you want to call it because I'd be a hypocrite if I said that I was, right? Because I'm not, like, like you, you all know that, right? Um, but in theory, like, the, through the intestinal tract, what you eat comes, goes in one end and comes out the other. And what comes out the other end is actually very beneficial for the plant kingdom, Right? In multiple ways. One, it, it, gro- it grossly expedites the, uh, the, the, the thing going from its first state to being useful as, as nutrient for other, for other trees, right? Through the enzymatic process of the, of like, that's why I like use manure, like, you know, you, you use, you don't use dry leaves, uh, you know, as, uh, as, um, as fertilizer, you use manure as fertilizer, and if you want to use your dry leaves, then you compost them, right? So there's an enzymatic process of digestion that happens in composting. As far as I know, I'm not an ecologist, but once upon a time I used to know this stuff, right? And that's what makes it that's what makes it useful, right? That's why if you throw if you eat an apple and you throw an apple core into a soccer field, you think to yourself, oh, that's great, you know what I mean? Like I'm I'm planting apple trees, you know what I mean? And I'm 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 fertilizing soccer fields. Well, you're not. It takes something like 60 years for that apple core to, to you know, but what goes in my mouth and comes out the other end is ready to be fertilizer right away. So that's one thing. Number two, things uh, li- like living things that move, eat things, and then they don't necessarily do their business where they ate, right? So I pick the apple, I eat it, and I go and I, forgive me, poop over there. I ate it over here, I poop over there. What happens with that, right? is that there is a propagation, a geographic propagation, of all kinds of different plant species, namely by things that move and that eat and so on. So there are certainly benefits to, to the plant kingdom for animals to be eating plants. But there's very little benefit for the sheep for me to eat the sheep. Like the sheep, the, 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 the little lamb, 
isn't going to benefit very much from me eating from me eating the lamb or the species of lambs or you know they're not going to they're not going to benefit much from that right yeah how how so you raise them you feed them like there is a certain benefit to the animals like otherwise what is it called like they wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to domesticate them like most most domestic how is it how because you're think out there saying please domesticate me huh I, I, no, I, it's not that. I'm saying, what is it called? Like, okay, so first, ha, ha, hang on. Forget about domestication. First of all, like in in hunting of animals, it's actually it's known that you need to. What is it called? Like hunting is beneficial to the animal kingdom within a certain amount. So by that same line of thinking, then hunting is perfectly fine. So your issue is with what is it called with eating domesticated animals, and I'd argue domestic even domesticated animals benefit because domesticated animals wouldn't exist in the same numbers if it wasn't for domestication. Like you wouldn't have that many sheep because they exist in those numbers that they need to be hunted. <laughs> Rafi had a comment. Yeah, what he's saying is scientifically right. Like you, have, that's why I kind of that verse. I'm glad you put it up, Abuna, because. It, it actually, our being at the top of the food chain is evidence of God's plan of how he wants his world to be run because we control populations of animals. A lot of the animals we've domesticated, like cows, pigs, wouldn't have prospered as well if it wasn't for humans domesticating them. Wouldn't have been as big and would have had as large populations and be as healthy. But then now we're abusing it. Now we're taking it too far. Now we're doing things that are very unethical. So it's it's actually right. It falls right in line with what that says, that we have dominion over them. Okay. <laughs> actually, that brings me back to my point. Like my point wasn't to say that eating animals it's, is okay. I'm saying it's how we eat the animals. It's the treatment of the animal. What do you mean it's how we eat the animals? Humane, humane. Yes, humane. Barbecue is fine. No, no, like, like humane. <laughs> Because there's an order in creation. Abuna spent like half of the, what is it called? Half of the last talk talking to us about order. So within creation, there is order. And within that order, we eat things. Whether it's plants or what is it called? Or it's animals. We're still eating. We're still killing life. But that's part of the order of life. Now, whether we do it respectfully and not wastefully, or we do it wastefully, that's where our stewardship comes in. Well, I've, I've done something. I've done something a mouse in my house and I set a mouse trap. And the objective of the mouse trap is to catch the mouse and kill the mouse. How is that? Am I supposed to let him in free and come on over and uh... Well they say from they say from season to season, Tansu, if you let if you let the mice hang around your house, they multiply by about fifty. So, you know, one season you have one, next season you have 50, the season after that you have 2,500, 2,500? 2, no, I have dominion over them. <laughs> Pretty soon they're going to have dominion over you. Then you're agreeing with me that it's part of your dominion that you like, yes, you're respectful and you care about the mouse, but at the same, no, hang on. Of course you do, but what is it called? But like you're not you're not going out to a field and killing the mouse. You're killing the mouse inside your house because it carries pestilence, and you can't keep it inside the house. 
So Mina and Tansu say, kill the mice. It's not kill, kill the, the mice. mice. It's not indiscriminately kill the mice. We don't go outside to the field and kill random animals. Like, like there's nothing more terrible than like when you see a kid standing outside with like the, like with the, what is it called, with the magnifying glass burning the ants. That's terrible. Like why? It's outside. It's where it's supposed to be. <laughs> but if it comes inside my kingdom, whoosh! Out comes the guillotine. Yeah. Mark, you had a comment. No, I, I, I don't know. Nothing was to do with this. Are you aware of my mom? And I still haven't catch him yet. I'm after the fall. Like, are you guys up before the fall? So what do you think? How do you think? How do you think the mice were in paradise? They probably didn't carry typhus. <laughs> So like yeah. Well, so so we're saying we're saying that one one wrong makes another wrong right. Two wrongs make a right. <laughs> you know what? I am increasingly enjoying the discussions that we have. You know because they really they they really they really uh, they really kind of bring things out. Yeah, I have something to say, right? Uh, not, not in some are, but not, not all, yeah. But some, yes, some Ethiopian Orthodox are vegan. The, the, the Eastern Orthodox monks and nuns are predominantly, are predominantly uh, uh, vegan. Uh, they, some of them may eat, or not vegan, like, like pescatarian, or some of them eat crustaceans and so on, but they certainly, they certainly don't eat meat. Because I missed the, the earlier part of what you guys were discussing, but I think we're understanding that... Are we saying that killing living things is wrong? No. No, no, we're not saying that. We're, we're, talking, we're talking about, um, for those who, who maybe are, uh, arrived a little bit, a little bit later, um, we're, we're, we're talking about man's relationship with the physical world, and we're saying that our reason for being, our reason for being, period, is to live in perfect and a perfect communion of love with God, with our fellow human beings, and with the physical world. That sounds really nice, but we have no idea what we're talking about. So we tried to kind of dissect that a little further. We talked about how humanity is the crown of creation, which is often thought of as dominion. And we talked about different kinds of dominion. The, the dominion of like a benevolent ruler versus the dominion of a tyrant. And... Um, and then that God has given us his creation so that we can offer it back to him. And when we take a gift and we offer it back to God, what's that called? It's called a sacrifice, uh, usually of love and of obedience, right? And then, um, and then you know, as we're talking about, about dominion, right? And about being benevolent rulers and about caring and being willing to give our own lives for the lives, for the, for the life of the world, all the world, all of creation... This issue came up, well, hold on a sec. If you're saying that ultimately, from an idealistic perspective, Tansu brought up the question, if an, from an idealistic perspective, you should, you're saying that I should die and let the, the mouse live, right? Then, but that's not what we're doing. That's not what I'm doing when I eat steak. That's not what I'm doing with the mice in my house and so on. And that's how we got on this, got on this whole topic, right? Versus like realism versus like our, like, uh, like, um, versus our ideals. By the way, these ideals are supported by other, other fathers. I don't have quotes about them because I didn't, right? And this idea that God put us on earth to decide 
like how much of this species there is and how much of that one and to save the, even even to save extinct species and not allow them to go extinct there's actually no patristic references that I've ever encountered for that in fact the opposite right there's a lot of references that say just let the created world be so if 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 some creatures go extinct let them go extinct but the idea is don't let them go extinct because you're burning holes in the ozone right like you're being benevolent to all of creation right and then let creation do its own thing right i know the idea that we're here to to be to, to save the universe is like a very is a very common and popular thing like and but it's not what i mean to say is it didn't that, did, that i thought did not originate in the early church to my knowledge i think i remember in the story of the fall itself like god like god did like after adam and eve fall, like uh, fell or like they were out of paradise like he i think he slaughtered like a, a like a lamb or yes. like he did like a, you know a slaughter wherever it was and 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 he gave like you know something to cover themselves with right so i think like the idea is like he wanted to give in their in their mind that, you know you guys like you will have life or like like you will be covered or like the idea of salvation will come from this like you know symbolic you know some public situation so like the problem is like to kill or not to kill but the problem is like how how god honors us and how how we are so like as we said like how we are steward to his creation and when we felt like like there's like multiple multiple things in the in the like in the whole world that serves for our service and even the angels themselves like they said in the bible like they are here like in, in some sort of they cast to obey god's commandment and also to serve man uh, so i'm saying like i mean I don't exactly have to put it in like an, an idea, but the problem is not to kill or not or, or to kill, but the problem is like how things put put in our salvation together, like how everything fits in our salvation. This is the main purpose at the end. That's an excellent. That's an excellent summary. Um, that's an excellent summary. God has given us all of creation that we may use it in our worship of God, whether that's in allowing the mouse to run free in your in your in your in your home, not saying you should or shouldn't, right? You're living out the love of God in that or if you're living out the love of God in whatever else, in offering bread and wine, you know, like in the liturgy. But that's creation as well, right? So maybe we should just kind of sum up and summarize with this, um, summarize with this quote at the end here by St. Gregory Palamas in his uh, 150 chapters. He says, Let us consider the great glory for which we were created and the true value of our lives as persons created in the image of God. Humanity was deemed worthy by God of such honor and providential care that before Him this entire sensible world came into being for His sake. And before Him, right from the foundation of the world, the kingdom of heaven was prepared for His sake and, counsel, and counsel concerning him was taken beforehand, and he was formed by the hand of God and according to the image of God. St. Gregory Palamas is saying, before man was ever created, God made heaven for him to live in. God made paradise, like Eden, for him to live in and to enjoy. God is not against our enjoyment. He made paradise for us to enjoy it. And then this distorted and fallen world, God prepared for us a savior to be incarnate. And to come and to save us. God is always long, long, long before He's preparing for us, right? In the liturgy, um, 
we say, um, Lord, like in the litany of the, of, the, of the seasons, we say, prepare it for sowing and harvesting. Manage our lives as deemed fit. We're saying, Lord, while the farmer is still in his bed sleeping, you, Lord, go and like make the furrows ready for, for, for sowing and, re- make and prepare the harvest for harvesting. You prepare, Lord. And uh, in the litany of the third hour, the third litany of the third hour, we say, He prepares our way for He is the God of our salvation. So you find multiple, multiple times, we find that God created this world long before He created us to prepare it for us, like Mark was saying, to bring us to be in this undivided communion with Him. So God created us to have this, this perfect communion of love with Him and with our fellow human beings and with all of the created world. Glory be to God forever and ever, amen.